your views, your values. This is WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11 we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today, we are talking with Dr. Luana Prevost, an associate professor in the Department of Integrative Biology, and we are talking about Florida's carnivorous plants and Florida's wetlands, with this Wednesday being the third annual World Carnivorous Plant Day. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the ever-excited Annie Ellis. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) uh, We have Irene answering your calls today, and we have Mr. Bill Grace working the boards. So stay tuned as we promote a balance of people, profit, and planet. So, Annie, how was your week? Um, It was uh, uneventful, but I was thrilled that we had so much rain. Uh, You know, everything is just green and gorgeous, and I didn't have to go out there and water everything in this horrible heat. It's amazing. It's amazing, though, to me, the wind that a lot of people got. I didn't get that much wind where I live. And so everybody was saying, oh, it knocked over trees. It was, you know, lost a bunch of banana trees, all this and that. But I didn't have that effect at all. I just had that wonderful, saturating rain. All my rain barrels are full. Yes, we definitely needed it. And I was at the Green Thumb Festival this past weekend, Saturday, Sunday. In the rain? Nope, it did not rain at all during the plant sale. But it was a thunderstorm from Saturday, you know, 5 p.m. to Sunday at 7 a.m. So I rained, you know, that entire wow, night. Wow, what good timing, though. It was very, very good timing. Wow. And, of course... How'd it go? Was it great? It was great. That's a big event. Usually about 40,000 uh, people attend that That's event. the biggest event, isn't it? Yeah, that and Lou Gardens yeah, in Lou Orlando. Gardens is a little bigger, right? Yes. Well, good. So today... One of my favorite topics. I know. <laughs> Carnivorous plants. That's right. So, Annie, you want to introduce our guest? Sure, sure. Uh, Dr. Luana Prevost uh, is an associate professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of South Florida, USF. She has a PhD in plant biology and currently teaches botany courses at USF. Her research focuses on improving undergraduate education in biology and ecology education. Uh, Thank you for being on the show, Luana. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Um, I wanted to first off just ask you because I I knew, and Kenny certainly knows, uh, but I thought that we should introduce what is integrative biology. Yes, so um, our department brings together many different subdisciplines of biology from ecology to physiology, microbiology, and now biology education. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- your sound is not really that great. Is there? A, are you on some sort of a different microphone, or you're just very quiet, Luana? We can't really hear you very well. Okay, yes, um, let so me try better. again. Yes, <laughs> that's so much better. Could you repeat what you just said? Thank so you. Wonderful. Okay, happy to repeat. Um, our department, Integrative Biology, brings together many subdisciplines of biology, including ecology, physiology, microbiology, and biology education. 
Okay. So just the broad beam about it. And we also wondered, what uh, does your research, you specifically said, focuses on improving undergraduate education in these areas? Yes. So I like to look at it from two angles. Um, We need to know what students are thinking. So part of my research looks at um, having students engage in written assessment and using that to understand how they understand biology concepts. Mm -hmm. And then um, the other part of my research focuses on how we can help the faculty to make any changes they would like to in their class, how we can support them. Oh, that's great. So uh, you change as needed. That's the that's a really great way of teaching. <laughs> At uh, the plant sale this week, on somebody was wearing a shirt that said, "Trust me, I'm an ecologist." <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so I trusted them. Yeah, we don't know what we trusted them with. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what type of habitats are, are considered wetlands? So um, many different habitats fall under the umbrella of wetlands. And they seem to have a few features in common that though there are various ways to define wetlands people tend to agree on, they um, have either standing water or waterlogged soils that have poor nutrients or um, low oxygen availability, and there are particular plants you find there. So for example, in our swamps, our marshes, bogs, seepage slopes, etc. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, why do you think people don't like? Are people afraid of wetlands? Do I they? Think they're scared of that. Do they think negatively about those types of ecosystems? I think people like uh, deserted islands, gators, <laughs> and snakes. I think yeah. that's what they're scared Luana, of. Luana, what do you, what do you think? Th- yeah, are people? Do people appreciate wetlands? Are they underappreciated? I think they are, but um, I guess the response is mixed. Some people are in awe of the. Um, Unique things you see in wetlands, like um, cypress knees, right? Like, who knew trees are these? <laughs> but, um, you know, others, you know, it's not a place that most people go to on a frequent basis. So it's unfamiliar. And, of course, we're in Florida. You're right. The gators and the snakes can yeah. be a little bit intimidating. And mosquitoes, too. Uh, that, too. <laughs> they don't bother me. I'm so lucky. But can you tell us why wetlands are important and why we should want to save them? So, yeah, um, wetlands are important in and of themselves because of the biodiversity they support. Um, There are such unique plants that you can find there as well as animals. And they also provide some um, services to us as well, to society. We refer to them as ecosystem services often. And these are things like regulating regulating when um, flooding. For example, which is really important in Florida, right? Um, we without these wetlands um, managing the flow and the water levels, we would be more susceptible to floods. They're also pretty important for um, helping us to regulate nutrient flow. So they're big um, carbon sink, which means they store carbon, which can help um, with temperature regulation. And they filter. Is that too? Is that what you're saying too? They're filtering the water. Yes, water purification is another important use um, for us of wetlands. Okay, and what did you call that? You called it ecosystem something. Services. Services, okay. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, I never really thought about it that way. But yeah, they're providing so many services and people don't look at 
I I think that's the thing. People don't really look at really what their function is. Everything has a function. And then when you eliminate one part of that function, it, you know, everything goes to heck in a handbasket. See, I cleaned that up for you. (laughs) That is true. And then, I mean, there's also the lighter side, all right? Um, We we do enjoy recreating in um, wetlands as well, right? So I think that is another important service they bring. And so what you're saying, recreating in wetlands, what does that mean? Because I'm thinking I'm not going out in the swamp to, to recreate. To swim. <laughs> exactly. That's not going to be my swimming area. So what do you mean by that when people are going to go out there and recreate? Yeah. So besides hiking, um, it's important for people who like to fish. Okay. The wetlands, um, as you said, they purify and filter the waters that go towards our um streams and rivers and provide uh, fresh water for fishing. So it's really important for that as well. Okay. Yeah, I can imagine people hiking, you, boating, you, fishing. Could you, could you do like a kayak in that sort of situation? I guess it depends on what level of water it is, right? Yes. So you would probably kayak with near the stream or um, surface waters that are adjoin the wetlands. Okay. Yeah, adjoining. That makes sense. The deeper sections. Luana, can you tell us what's the difference between a swamp and a wetland? Yeah, so I think of wetland as an overarching term that encompasses swamps and marshes, other types of wetlands. And um, the swamps tend to be our forested wetlands. They tend to have standing water for many months of the year, sometimes even half the year or more. And when we think of Florida swamps, we think of um, cypress and tupelo, these larger trees um, that are dominating the habitat. We think of standing water. And then we have in the understory, we tend to have things like buttonbush, which are um, obligate species that only grow in wetland areas. So you mentioned tupelo. I'm not familiar with that. What is that? Um, it's a hardwood. And we find it a little bit more in our northern swamps. And it, um, it's Nisa is the, the genus of okay. the tupelo. Wow, interesting. So you mentioned snakes and gators. What are some other uh, animals that we can find in the Florida swamps and wetlands that we should be celebrating and not fearing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. None of those things should be feared, just cautious. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should celebrate um, our... Um, other reptiles and amphibians. For example, nobody thinks of salamanders, which need some of these habitats. Um, We also have mammals, for example, otters, pretty charismatic, but we don't often think of the habitat that they need, you know, to to survive. Do we have those big otters in our uh, habitats or are they all Mm. little ones? We have tiny ones. In the Amazon, they have the four foot river otters. So we don't have that in Florida. We have tiny river otters. Cute. (laughs) Cute. I worked at, I didn't work. I lived in an apartment complex on Westwaters and like uh, Del Mabry, and there was otters in the oh, retention pond. Oh, wow. They had their own swimming cool. pool. Yeah. Then I got a little nervous when I saw those giant uh, Florida softshell turtles in there, too. Oh, eating the otters? Well, they weren't eating the otters, but they maybe could have been. They probably could have. <laughs> Luana, could they have been eating the baby otters, probably? What snack? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because those turtles were probably two foot. Across. Big turtles. Yeah. Do turtles eat otters? I know they eat baby Muscovy ducks. Do they really? 
Wow. <laughs> so salamanders, I think those things are beautiful. And we, do we have, we have a big diversity here of salamanders? We have a few salamanders, yes. A few? <laughs> All right, so uh, Luana, let's talk about the plants that we can find in the wetlands because today's show is the wetlands and carnivorous plants. Yes. <laughs> So other than carnivorous plants, what are I know you mentioned some of the taller trees and stuff. Do we have uh, like pretty flowers or orchids in the wetlands of Florida? Yeah, we do have a lot of um, pretty herbaceous species. Um, we have like, for example, our pine pink orchids. Um, pine one of pink the things, orchids? Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. Yes. One of the things that um, dominate our wetlands are actually... Um, sedges and grasses so we don't necessarily think of those a lot but they are one of the dominant types of um, two of the dominant types of plants in our wetlands so if we think of more um, southern Florida we can think of like the salt grass in the upper northern part of the Everglades um, as a as a dominant sedge and how have people in Florida treated the wetlands in the past have we oh. been kind to them or oh. Do you know how much of the wetlands remain from, you know, 200 years ago? Yeah, so um, post-colonial um, settlement, um, the wetlands were not necessarily treated kindly. Uh, we lost about 50% of our wetlands Ooh, since then. 50. So um, luckily, though, we are appreciating our wetlands a little bit more. And um, there are more projects to um, conserve and even restore wetlands now. Oh, that's great. So they're actually in the works of uh, having restoration done for ones that had been overtaken? Yeah, some communities have um, some wetland restoration going on. And so how do they do that? Uh, do they, uh, you say some communities, are the communities uh, doing that themselves? I mean, something's got to perpetuate that. Yeah, so um, we have... Um, both state agencies and private agencies that take on um, protection, conservation, and res restoration projects. Mm -hmm. And they will host things like, um, well, cleanups, but also invasive species removal, which is oh, pretty yeah. important. Very important. So what did you say, prenup? What did you just say? Cleanups, Clean like up. cleaning up like, the wetlands. <laughs> yes. Oh, they have to sign off so they don't tell us to take after they yeah. get married. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, reintroduce our guest because then we got to get to my favorite type of plant that can be found in the wetland, oh, a carnivorous plant. You want to do the sure, introduction? Sure, I'll do it. I'm Annie Ellis, and you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF 88.5. Today's guest is Dr. Luana Prevost, an associate professor in the Department of Integrative Biology, and we are talking about Florida's carnivorous plants and wetlands. If you want to be part of this conversation, please give us a call at 813-239-9663, text us at 813-433-0885, or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, and we will read it on the air. So, Luana, why do carnivorous plants or other plants... Why do they live in the wetlands and how can they live in these nutrient uh, lacking lacking environments? Yeah, well, they have the advantage of being able to get their nutrients other ways. So typically plants will get their nutrients, particularly nitrogen, from the soil. 
But in wetlands, there is a lot of water in the soil, which makes um, oxygen less available and therefore nitrogen becomes less available because the nitrogen isn't able able to be processed in a way into a, a form that plants can use it. So most plants in this habitat are dealing with low nitrogen availability. Then the carnivorous plants are able to say, well, we can get our nutrients elsewhere, right? They have able to capture prey that is, which is, for me, it's, it's really cool because plants usually are the prey. But instead, we have these um, plants being able to capture insects, dissolve them, and extract the nitrogen and other nutrients from the prey. I never thought about that as far as uh, the nitrogen being in the insects. Because you're right. I mean, it's all brown out there. There's no green <laughs> for anything to absorb up. But I never thought about that the nitrogen is in the insect. I d well, I'm not a scientist, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why they can do that is because they repurpose this enzyme called chitinase that all, pretty much all plants have to fight off uh, fungus attacks. Mm -hmm. Because fungus are also made out of chitin. Oh. And insects are also made out of chitin. So instead of using it to fight off fungus... The carnivorous plants repurpose that enzyme to digest insects. Now, is that the product that's in crab meal that yes. helps with the uh, the uh, not nematodes push those down? Yeah, very good. I I know in the past on our show we had um, like an edible insect. Yes, and I did some further talking with those people, and they were saying. Yeah, people should be eating insects because they're basically just like a miniature lobster or a crab. <laughs> That's you know, true. they're made out of you the look same at those things. Millipedes yeah. and so on. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we've digressed. We we digress, but it's all it's all integrated. It is all related. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Luana, we're talking about the carnivorous plants, and uh, you know, we're, they're eating the insects. But are there other reasons why we should be saving carnivorous plants and their habitats? Um, well, they are very unique in their um, biodiversity. And um, these habitats where they are found are little islands in the matrix of, let's say, our flatwood habitats. So Florida is a hotspot for biodiversity. And by conserving these unique islands, we also have to conserve the matrix or the sea of other habitats around them. So focusing on carnivorous plants is actually a great way to help conserve larger areas and more diverse landscapes. I love the, the visual of uh, looking at that as they are little islands of habitat. And, you know, that makes so much sense because each one of them has a purpose for the next thing next to it. Uh, and if you take one away, you know, as anything, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's going to disrupt that whole unit. And even as recently as like 15 years ago, they said, Harvard scientists said that we have a pitcher plant they separated it from this other species that's oh. up and down the East Coast, up into Canada, over to Michigan. They said that the one that's in Florida is its own species now. So it used to be like a subspecies, but then they separated it because, um, you know, the next nearest population is like hundreds of miles and there would be no way that they could naturally interbreed with pollinators and things like that. So, yes. How did that get here if it's hundreds of miles away for that specific species? Well, probably in the middle 
those populations disappeared. Oh, got it. And okay. then, and so then they became an island. Over exactly, yeah. Oh, very interesting. Makes and, so much sense. And for those carnivorous plant geeks out there, I'm talking about Saracenia rosea <laughs> versus Saracenia purpurea. <laughs> Just in case you wanted to look it up. Yes. So this Wednesday um, is the third annual World's Carnivorous Plant Day. It's always the first Wednesday in May because Annie knows the first Saturday in May is always World Naked Gardening Day. <laughs> so we had to make sure those Don't two dates were... so funny like <laughs> We had to make sure those two dates were separate. That's so true. So this Wednesday... <laughs> World's Carnivorous Plant Day. On the hour, every hour, the International Carnivorous Plant Society will be posting videos on their YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook channels to bring carnivorous plants into the spotlight of public awareness and education. Presenters include conservationists and growers from all over the world. And then the last video of the day includes a photo contest in which about 20 countries participate. And there's about maybe 75, 100 individuals who participated. You're going to put some in, aren't you? Well, I, I'm in charge of the contest, so, oh, so I, it might I, look I bad if you won. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't submit it, but um, if you want to learn more about carnivorous plants, that that's a great uh, yeah. resource. And you know, we're we're so timely here at WMNF. I love that that that's going to happen all day. And in the state of Florida, we have the most carnivorous plant species out of all the other states. Uh, we have wow. 32 native species and one non-native species, and the most famous. Of course, is the Venus flytrap. Oh, okay. I which, was thinking it was going to be that little dew. The little, sundews? The yeah. Sundews, huh? <laughs> I think more people know about the Venus flytrap, well, little yeah. shop of horrors and they're, things like they're that. Fancier. Yeah. So, Luana, can you talk about how a Venus flytrap works and how it eats? Yes. Yeah, so, I'm glad you brought up little shop of horrors because that <laughs> sort of gives everybody an image of what a Venus flytrap would look like on a grand scale. But it does have these two leaves that are able to trap the insects. And the way it does it is by having hair triggers on the leaf. And once a threshold of the hairs has been triggered by the insect walking along the leaf, the leaf is able to close. And the leaf closes by changing the shape of the cells in the leaf as the um ion concentrations in those cells change. So by doing so, it's able to close the leaf, trap the inside, the insect inside, and then the insect remains there as the um, enzymes are excreted from the leaf and then slowly dissolve the exoskeleton or the um, insect from the outside. That is so interesting. It actually changes the cell structure to activate that. I... Uh, knew that you had to tap those mm -hmm. little hairs that were poking out, you know, like two on one side, one on the other side sort of a thing, and then it activated it, and I did it. But then Kenny told me that it can only close a few times and then it dies. So it doesn't have a long life if you, you can't trigger those for fun. Well, so what's the story the, on that? The individual leaf can only open and close and digest about three times. Yeah. But one plant will have 10 leaves or 20 leaves so I can eat like 60 times. Okay. But the individual I felt terrible leaf. about it. I did a plant sitting and just went nuts on the <laughs> She's just poking everything. <laughs> I <did. laughs> uh, and uh, I want to emphasize that Luana said that um, she keeps saying like leaf. And right. that's important because there's about 800 to 1,000 species of carnivorous plants from all over the world. 
and all of them use modified leaves to trap, lure, and capture their and digest their prey. And a lot of times when you go to a plant sale, people say, oh, how do I get my pitcher plant to bloom? Oh, they how think it's a flower. They think it's a oh, flower, okay. but it's just for the pitcher plant, it's just half of the leaf. Right. And then the flower looks completely but, different. But they do have flowers. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not what they're, yeah, trapping their mechanism yeah. with. Yeah. That's interesting to and, me. Yes. <laughs> and... Uh, so in my book, we talk about Venus flytraps because in 1971, someone, as in a single individual, started planting them from the Carolinas into the panhandle of Florida. So there's oh. two populations of these rogue uh, Venus flytraps in the panhandle, but they're not native. But they, they took. But they took, but they haven't spread, and they get frozen back every year, and they get oh. eaten by bugs every year. So. Yeah, it's not an ideal situation for them. Yeah, so it's been like 51 years now, 52 years now. So we don't say they're invasive, but they're definitely not native. Oh, okay, interesting. But they're the most infamous, at least, of all the carnivorous plants. Well, so what are we facing with our wetlands? I mean, is there some danger or the threats that we're facing with this, uh, the wetland loss? Or what, what's going on with that? Yeah, so some of the major threats in the past and continue to be uh, threats are um, development. So as we know, Florida population is continuing to grow and um, we want to um, develop areas for both residential and commercial purposes. So that can be a big threat to wetlands. Additionally, um, pollution, either from you know, stormwater or agricultural sources, can also be a threat to our wetlands. Yeah, I would imagine so. You know, I've noticed that people uh, that are right next to the mangroves, they're illegally taking out a lot of the mangroves. Uh, and there's no, there doesn't seem to be uh, as much uh, overseeing to protecting that to me. I guess they just don't have enough hand, enough boots on the ground to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because after it happens, it's done. You know, they just pay the fine, I guess. Have you found that to be true? Um, well, the mangroves are protected. But uh, like you said, you know, actually um, enforcement is difficult if you have such a long coastline like Florida does, mm -hmm. but um, only able to monitor certain parts at a time. So, yeah, enforcement can be very difficult. I was in the panhandle last week doing some presentations and I met with my friend who um, has a PhD in ecology and evolution and she is working for the FWC and her sole job... What's that, Kenny? The floor... What is that, Luana? <laughs> Florida Wildlife Sorry. Commission. FWC, Florida Wildlife Commission. Okay. Thank yes. you. Sorry to put you on the spot. Good job, Mr. Bill Grace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she is kind of like the sole person, is what I was described at. She described it as. She's the sole person who looks at new hotels being built on the beach, and then she has to assess how much light and the type of lighting they can use for sea turtles and manatees. Yes, that's a thing uh, in so many places. And, you know, they're trying to change that. That's uh, one of our new, our governor's new things. He wants to deregulate that. And so they aren't, uh, you know, having to, to go along with those guidelines. Well, I imagine that there's a coworker who does that for probably mangroves. Because I remember a celebrity in Miami, he removed all of them, and then he was fined like oh, yeah. multi-millions of dollars, yeah. and then the city of Miami made him plant more mangroves because he wanted to see the ocean easier. 
Sure. I mean, there's a there's a reason they just don't they don't you know, I don't think it's a lot of times I don't really think it's malicious. I think it's ignorance. And they, you know, have the money and the wherever wherever are all to be able to to manage that because they will bully people into doing it for them. Uh, Because I know, you know, just off the cuff is that uh, I know people that will do illegal tree work. I mean, not personal friends of mine because I wouldn't have that as a friend, but uh, but they will do illegal tree work just to catch get the check. Yeah. yeah, so education is important. I was told this past weekend that somebody was going to throw out a mayonnaise jar without like cleaning. They're going to throw it out rather oh, than recycle it. Oh, and wow. then they said, what would Annie say about no, this? They didn't. Yes, they did. This, oh, was, so this is what people tell me, Annie, at the plant sales. They'll come up to me, they'll be talking <laughs> and they go, oh, we listen to your show every week. And, you know, because we didn't know that Publix isn't paying the extra penny per pound for the tomatoes. They're like, well... That changed our shopping method or, oh, I got to clean these jars off for Annie. Oh, <laughs> I'm so happy. That makes me so happy. Because yes. if you don't clean your jars, it's, it you pollutes can't recycle the recycling. It. Mm-hmm. And you have to remove the lids and put them in the garbage too. Yay! So, uh, Luana, we talked about the Venus flagship, the most famous, but let's start talking about the native ones. Annie uh, mentioned earlier about the sundews, so their scientific name is uh, Drosera. The so what? Things. They're cute. So, Luana, what does a sundew look like and... How do they eat and trap their food? So I think, like you said, sundews are some of the cutest plants. <laughs> they are. They are tiny, probably about the size of a quarter or a little larger. Some of them can get much longer than that, but at least those around here. And um, they tend to look like a little rosette or star-shaped, um, and they're very close to the ground. So oftentimes we can overlook them if we're not, even when I'm looking for sundews, Sometimes it's a hunt, hunt mm-hmm. you know, because they're so inconspicuous. Mm-hmm. But once you find them, this little rosette of um, leaves, which are very thin, close to the ground, you will see that there are hairs on these leaves. And on the hairs, they're little, what look like a little um, globules or... Yes, that's a little, perfect description. Like sparkly yeah. ends to the hairs. And these are what are used to trap the insect prey, like ants or gnats. I took my class out earlier this semester, and we found a caterpillar trapped in a oh. sundew, a really small one. Um, there was mi- there were mixed feelings about that. Uh, sure. <laughs> I, I know. I, it's, it's you know, nature, and it's got to be that way, but it does kind of hurt my feelings a little bit, too. <laughs> but, you know, I remember seeing that for the first time, and I thought, Oh, did we have a heavy dew in this area? Seriously, I thought that's what it was because mm-hmm. it's like little. You dew thought droplets. it was just like dew on grass. I did. Yeah, like little yeah. dew droplets <laughs> that are all at the ends of all those little hairs. And I found the ones that I saw had a lot of red in them. Are they all uh, the red colored uh, in that stem part, or not? Because I don't um, know. They can be red and or green. Oh, okay. The green yes, would be so hard to find. Yeah, we have one species in Florida that's solid green, mm-hmm. but the other. Four or five are all red. Yeah, those are the ones I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. The green ones all the way up in the panhandle. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, Luana, I was doing a presentation a week ago, and somebody was saying that this person maybe was in like their 70s, 80s, and they were saying when they were a child, they used to just kind of like run through fields of moths and grasshoppers and beetles, you know, growing up in Florida. And then they said, we can go, you know, we can leave our doors our screen door open for hours and not a single bug comes it's into so the house. Sad to me. So then they asked me, you know, how are carnivorous plants going to yeah. be affected? So Luana, do you know 
how serious the insect decline is around the world or in Florida? And how is that affecting the, uh, the, the insect eating plants? Um, so there has been um, documentation of a severe decline in insects around the world. Um, this, a lot of our carnivorous plants are trapping, especially the sundews, they're trapping ants and gnats. So while um, we may not be seeing as many um, butterflies, moths, um, there are plenty ants and gnats. So I think in that case for the sundews, they may be able to um, continue despite the declines. With um, other um, plants that catch um, insects that are away from the ground, um, insects that are usually um, can also be pollinators, it might be a little bit um, more difficult for them to um, get free. Now, why uh, are they saying that there is a severe decline? What are the reasons for that? I have some ideas, but I'd like to hear it from you. Yeah, well, habitat loss and climate change are two of the um, biggest reasons for our decline. Wow. So we have removed um, several acres of, um, sorry, not just acres, like <laughs> hectares, even more of um, natural lands. And because of this, we have removed the habitat for specific insects, for example. But in addition with um, climate change and changes in both um, precipitation and temperature, we've also changed the availability of, for example, um, Wetlands are getting less precipitation in some areas, and that could change the availability of habitat. Um, when temperatures change, um, oftentimes the plants are unable to disperse quickly into an area that is of suitable temperature. So then those plants are affected, and in turn, the insects that depend on them are also affected. So these features can really um, affect the maintaining biodiversity across the world. You meant, thank you for that. Uh, you mentioned that, that uh, when those changes happen, you could lose what, maybe one specific insect in that area. And I was reading about, uh, I can't think of the name of the type of shark, that it's like there's only 50 left and it, it only its main food source is one particular fish. And so they're checking, you know, to, to make sure that that isn't going to be harmed because uh, that's what it eats. And um, so I was wondering about that, you know, some of the plant materials, if they're going to lose that specific insect that's kind of made for them, I mean, that's the way nature works, uh, then, then, they, then we lose that plant too. Uh, is that what's going on as well or not? Am I just making that up? No, you're on point. Um, it works in both directions because with plants, they provide sometimes host habitat. So if you think of like the typical example is the monarchs, right? Yes, exactly. The plant, Specific, right. Yeah. The plants provide a habitat and food source for the monarchs. Mm -hmm. And in turn, they provide pollination for the plants. So if one of those two in this um, yeah. interconnected relationship is affected, then it can have um, effects for the entire ecosystem. Yeah. You know, I've noticed the reduction uh, in, you know, in the city, of course, because everybody pays a, a pest control guy to come out and spray everything. And I, uh, I had a 
different house that went up right next to me and they had a guy that was starting to spray and I have a lot of edibles uh, at my house you know on that specific side there's bananas papayas I mean there's just so much uh, mulberries and so <clears throat> I noticed that my pollinator uh groups were diminished dramatically on that side. Um, and so I'm guessing that that's a big contributor as well to the decline of the insects in our world. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's just a small amount or do you think that that's working it, you know, because they're... The pesticide use. Correct. Because they're doing that as well in all these fields of farms and so on. They're doing so much pesticide work. Yeah, definitely pesticides are... Um, reducing our abundance of pollinators. That's so sad. By any chance, Luana, do you know a Dr. David Jennings from USF? Um, I don't believe so. Okay. Who does, uh, what does he do, good, Kenny? Good question. I'm not too sure, but I do, I do know a quote of his. Okay. He said that pesticide use above, below, or within the recommended treatment levels can be harmful to carnivorous plants, oh. which of course makes sense because if your neighbor's spraying poisoning the insects, and then they fall into a plant. Oh, I hadn't even thought about then that. They're gonna so be, if they eat the poisoned insect, they're not gonna then be it's going to affect well. them too. Oh, yeah. see? My goodness. It's all, in, it's all connected. It is. So, uh, Luana, you have a couple of questions, but first I want to remind listeners that this is the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Dr. Luana Prevost, an associate professor in the Department of Integrative Biology, and we are talking about Florida's carnivorous plants and wetlands. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663, or you can send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, and we will read it on air. So, uh, Luana, you have a question from an audience member, and they said, where in uh, Central Florida can they go and see wild carnivorous plants? Oh, that's a great question. Um, my Favorite location because you can see at least um, some Saracenia, some pitcher plants, and some sundews is um, Brooker, Pre- Brooker Creek Preserve is a really nice spot to go see um, carnivorous plants. And there's a lot of different pathways through there. So you can do long hikes. You can do short hikes. It's, it's a beautiful spot. It is. And do you have any other recommendations in Central Florida? Um, well... I do like the USF Forest Preserve. That's where I take my <laughs> class. So I guess shameless plug. Um, you can obtain um, permits to um, venture through the preserve. Um, and you can do so through the USF website. Oh, okay. So, so that's you, another spot. That's interesting. I didn't know about this. So there's the USF Forest Preserve. And then you go to the USF website and then get a permit to be able to go through there. Is that how that works? Yeah, so we now authorize groups for educational purposes to um, be able to um, visit the preserve. Wow. And it's about 500 hectares right here in North Tampa, so it's... um, a nice spot with a high diversity, including some carnivorous. Well, let me ask you this, because that that really strikes me as I'd love to be on one of those tours. You know, seriously, I would love to walk around with an educated person that's pointing out this stuff. Is this available to the public or not? Um, so the um, we've had in the past couple of years um, tours every few months. Uh-huh. So it hasn't been something that happens like every week or so. And... Um, Hopefully those will still continue. 
How do we get that going? We call Craig over there. Get I was just going to say, do you know who's in charge? I think Craig is in charge of that, but I'm not too sure. He's the new so, landscape guy over there. I mean, you know, the director of yeah, the, the director. botanical gardens. Yeah, he's great. But I don't know if he's in yeah, charge so of the preserve. Currently, Go ahead. Yeah. So you can also contact Nicole Brandt. She is also the director of the Eco Corps. Nicole, what's your last name? Brandt. B-R-A-N-T? D. D. Brandt. Okay. Okay. And she's in charge of that uh, area. I would love to walk on one of those. That would be fantastic. I could see that would be great. So, Luana, you have a couple more questions and comments. One is, what do we do if our carnivorous plant is flowering? But I'm going to take that one, Luana. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> because historically people, up until about two years ago, people said you have to cut off the flowers of the sundews or the Venus flytraps because they put all their energy in the flower the, to make seeds, etc. But during COVID, there's been more research because people haven't had customers in their face. <laughs> so, so the carnivorous plant uh, nursery people have been able to study things oh, and you know good. do experiments. So, in the past two years, they actually said that this is just a myth that the carnivorous plants, especially Venus flytraps and sundews, they don't really grow for about four weeks or six weeks when they're putting their energy in the flowers okay. and seeds, seed making. But of course, in the wild, people are not going and cutting off the flowers. Well, that's just to, what I was thinking. Uh, nature was handling yeah, it just but, well without people. Exactly. But some of the smaller um, sundews that uh, Luana was talking about. The ones that are native to here, like Drosera brevifolia and Drosera capillaris, they're the size of a quarter, and they're short-term perennials. So they only live like two years or three years. and then so they, they need that seed. And then they do flower. So if you're going to grow them, you're going to need to collect. Oh, okay. So then the seed happens towards the end of their life because it's going to give it all to that and then die? Yeah. And then, sh- and then send its seeds out to replenish yeah. itself. But for the Saracenia, which are the North American pitcher plants or the Venus flytraps, they live 15 to 25 years. Oh, wow. So they're fine flowering and oh, the mother right. plant stays alive. Yeah. Oh, that's like that. very interesting. Okay. Now, Luana, we have a couple of other comments. Somebody says, I've seen plenty of sundews at Colt Creek State Park. Okay. And the Green Swamp. And, uh, oh, yes. I- and I just want to add that uh, Violet Curry Park, which is kind of North Tampa, they also have some bladder warts and uh, Violet sundews. Violet Curry? Yep. That's Vi- a great name. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a lovely park. Yeah, there are a lot of sundews and bladder warts there. So, yeah, it's a nice spot, too. Thanks for uh, mentioning that. Yeah, the more the better. And then uh, we have a comment from... Jane, who says there's a natural alternative to steroid injections. What? It's derived from the pitcher plant Saracenia purpurea. It's called Serapin, and it's an all-natural and safe alternative to non-steroid steroidal I have anti-inflammatory lots. drugs. I have lots of aches. That would be amazing. <laughs> so I'm going to. And it says, given by injection, oh, okay. serapin is a non-toxic natural substance that doesn't accumulate in the body and isn't processed by the liver. Oh, but it's it's injectable, so you have to go to a doctor to do it. Well, I, I would. I, <laughs> yes, unless you yeah. want to be doing that. Yeah, I won't be doing that. And then, uh, Luana, we have a comment from Joe Dover. He says, my neighbor uses chemical fertilizer and pesticides on his yard yeah. and has several flowering trees and plants. I use nature completely. Half of my yard of two acres, I do absolutely nothing to. It's all Florida natural habitat. And the other half I tend to as needed. I notice my neighbor seems to have no pollinators. 
and I have too many to count. Oh, I'm so, so glad you do. That's that's wonderful. They've gone well, to your house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, Luana, we've been mentioning Saracenia, and then I said that it's a North American pitcher plant. So can you... I think people when people think about the Florida pitcher plants, they're kind of the oh, most he's wearing one. <laughs> <laughs> they're the most charismatic and they're the biggest. So can you tell us how they function and how they eat? Yes. So they form a one of some of their leaves form a tube. So that's where the pitcher comes from, like a pitcher of orange juice. And um that is called it forms a pitfall trap, meaning that insects accidentally fall in and they can't get out. And one of the reasons, well, there's a few mechanisms that prevent them from getting out. One is that the pitcher plant tends to have a lid that covers the entrance, making the entrance very dark. And therefore, the um, insects would know to, they, who would never usually travel towards light, don't go towards the entrance. Instead, they go towards the sides of the pitcher plant where there are usually light spots. And these lighter spots attract the insect to the inside of the pitcher plant rather than to the exit. Additionally, some of the pitcher plants have hairs around the um, rim of the pitcher and these hairs make it harder for the um, insects to climb out. So once the insects are stuck in there, then the pitcher plant can release enzymes and so there's, if you pour out or a pitcher plant, there's a little slurry of insects and um, liquids as the um, exoskeleton or the chitin is being digested. I did that when I was a kid. <laughs> I opened one up and I was like, good grief, this is a graveyard down here. And when they accidentally spill on you, you have little bits of insects. Oh, it was. It was I slime over it doesn't bother hands. me at all. But <laughs> I, I thought it was fascinating, you know, that that was, you could see it all right there. So we have uh, three other types of carnivorous plants that are native to the state of Florida. And I mentioned a bladderwort. Luana, can you tell us what a bladderwort is and how they work? Yeah, so some of our um, um, plants are aquatic. So they occur in um, standing water. And bladderworts generally um, do so. There are a couple of exceptions. And so they have no true roots. Instead, they have leaves that are very thin and dissected that are hanging under the surface of the water. And at the end of some of those leaves, there are little sacs or little bulb, bulb, bulbs. And these are where the um, prey is captured. So as the prey swims past the bulb, they again can trigger a hair, which activates the suction of the prey into the bulb. No so it's a little suction cup. I did not know that. And I thought those were just their floating devices. Well, I was going to say, when you look at them, a lot of people think they're like the roots. But earlier we said that they all carnivorous plants use modified leaves. So right. these like delicate little structures. Those are, are just, their leaves. Yeah. So I didn't know that those bulbs that were under there were the eating parts, though. I really thought that was just its flotation device. I'm, this is so great. I learned something new. And every show we have, I learned right. something. It's so great. That's how everyone should enter the world. That's right. Every, every experience, they should learn something. That's right. All right, Luana, we only have about two minutes. Can you tell us uh, what a butterwort is? Um, so butterworts <laughs> are closely related um, to um, the bladderworts, but they look completely different. So they are also have a basal rosette, sort of like the, the sundew. But instead, they have um, leaves that are broad versus um, very skinny. 
And these leaves uh, form like a star shape near the surface of the ground. So another hard carnivorous plant to find is the butterwort. You have to get down almost on your hands and knees sometimes to find them. And those leaves right near the surface of the ground have um, are very textured. They have these little hairs and the glands on the leaves that again present sort of a fly paper trap oh. that will trap any of the insects walking along the ground that um, walk over the leaves. So why is it called a butterwort? I was thinking it's going to have like little butter pat squares <laughs> of yellow. <laughs> is there no yellow involved in this? Some of the flowers. Oh, are they? So they're called butterworts because when you so when you spread it on your toes. No, no, no. <laughs> Butterworts because like butter is kind of like slippery yeah. and kind Creamy. of slimy. Uh-huh. So when you touch the leaf of a butterwort, which is how they're trapping those little microorganisms, it's like greasy, oh, buttery it's slippery feeling. Slippery as butter. Yeah. Is that what you're so saying? the scientific okay. name is pinguicula, which means like greasy one or buttery uh, got one. Got it. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. <laughs> All right. And then the last carnivorous plant uh, genus. Uh, Luann, I can talk about is a carnivorous bromeliad. And as of today, there's about 2,500 bromeliads around the world. And only, as of today, only three of them are considered carnivorous. I did not know that. I thought they all were. In the state of Florida, um, we have a catopsis species that's way at the very tip of Florida and it's also in many South African, South American countries. And they have some powder that allows them to capture their prey. I thought that they all were carnivorous in the sense that in those little uh, water pockets, they fall in and they absorb the, uh, the proteins and so on. Is that not true? No. As of today, they only say that three of them are capable of wow. digesting the bugs so that go in there. So it's just a happenstance that they're there. It doesn't really yeah. contribute. Wow. All right, Dr. Luana Prevost, we thank you so much so for much. being our guest today. Thank you for sharing about wetlands and Florida's carnivorous yeah, plants. Yeah, we really appreciate you. I learned so much today from you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Good, thank you. Good. That's the, that's the whole point. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we have a message from Trinkle. Thank you for another great show and thank oh. your guest for us. Please, you guys are very enjoyable to listen to and oh, I learned good. a lot. Yay, Twinkle. And um, I have four events that I want to mention yes. today. Today at two o'clock, as in two <laughs> hours from now, what day is that? <laughs> I will be at the Arcadia Garden Club, and I'm going to be doing a full presentation oh, on wow. Florida's carnivorous plants. That's a long It takes drive. an hour and thirty-seven minutes to get there, and oh, the talk is at two gosh. o'clock. Y'all if you're in Tampa, run. we can all leave together <laughs> tomorrow. May 2nd, the Tar Flower chapter of the Florida Native Plant Society is having their monthly meeting at 7 p.m. at the Mead Botanical Garden in Winter Park. And I will be there presenting my Florida's carnivorous plant talk there as well. You need an airplane. (laughs) Okay, now we did get an email who wanted me to repeat the World's Carnivorous Plant Info, so I will do that. On Wednesday, May 3rd, it is World's Carnivorous Plant Day. Visit the International Carnivorous Plant Society's YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook page to view over 25 videos of carnivorous plant conservation and cultivation. I'm so, going to put that on my personal site. Yeah, so one every hour on the hour for about 25 hours, we'll be releasing videos That's for um, May 3rd, World's Carnivorous Plant Day. On Saturday, May 6th, we have two events one of them is the Manatee Rare Fruit Council. This is a big one, y'all. It's having their annual rare fruit tree sale. This is a once-a-year opportunity to purchase rare and unusual fruiting trees and plants. There's going to be over 15 v- vendors. This is an outdoor event, 
and those 15 vendors will all be providing expert advice. Yeah, they know everything. Well, I'm a member of that group. So, I mean, it, it's amazing the knowledge in the, the heads of these folks. This is a great opportunity to meet experienced fruit tree growers and purchase trees, fertilizer, and possibly sample some fruit. Um, and, Annie, we got to get this on board. What, at USF Botanical Garden Sale? They had UF IFAS extension mm-hmm. agent people, and they were giving away free sam- oh, they were giving away samples of uh, <laughs> finger limes. You oh, know yeah. finger limes. Oh and, yeah. And have you seen the way they they squeeze out of the um, thing? It's I took amazing. one as a sample uh-huh. and I snapped it in half so I could eat it. And now my carnivorous plant tent has splattered finger lime caviar all over. They push out. uh, If you just cut the end, they push out of the end. It's really not as citrus. They say it is, but it's really not. But But it's it's going to be a, it's a crop of the future for Florida is what they're promoting. And they're also, because it's not affected by citrus greening. And they're also trying to do some sort of a grafting situation. So we got to get them on the show. Oh, that's a good idea. All right. So for the Manatee Rare Fruit Council, it's going to be the same location as 2021 and 2022, which is the Premier Sports Campus at Lakewood Ranch. The address is 5895 Post Boulevard, Lakewood Ranch, Florida. And the event is this Saturday from 9 to 3. And also on this Saturday, May 6, from 10 to 4, herbalists and plant lovers around the world will come together to celebrate the importance of plants to our health with the 2023 Herb Day St. Pete. And Very we can, good. you can contact our good friend, Bob, Dr. Bob Lindy. Oh, he's so great. Or Trisha uh, Perez. The address is 2520 Central Avenue, St. Pete, Florida, 33712. Yes, and that's they, like the 17th annual, I think, uh, National fantastic. Herb fantastic. You would Day. learn so much. I've been on a lot of herb walks with, with Bob, and it is, he is just brilliant. He knows everything about it. He's been doing this forever. Uh, he's uh, They do acupuncture. There's another one that I was sent okay, today you, yes. uh, on my... <clears throat> oh, it's cute. I had it here. Uh, UF uh, IFAS uh, Hillsborough Extension has a uh, an online uh, program Wednesday, May seventeenth, from twelve to one, and it is uh, for backyard composting, and it's on Zoom. So you guys ought to check that out uh, because that's it would be an easy thing to do, and it's uh, everybody needs to do backyard composting. Very good. If you enjoyed this show and our weekly content, please go to wmnf.org, donating through the tip jar and direct your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Stay tuned. In the next hour, you will hear WMNF Tampa's Monday Music with Flea. If you want to hear more public interest programming, switch over to WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source, and listen to today's Tom Hartman Show live. Make sure to turn in next Monday morning at 11 for the next Sustainable Living Show. And it's my birthday next week. (laughs) Follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living WNF, to stay in the loop. And to listen to our past shows, go to Listen On Demand. I'm Kenny Coogan. I'm Annie Ellis. Remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. And you're listening to WMNF Tampa. Bye. Bye.